Good day. I am delighted to be delivering the lectures on international environmental law for part of the mini-series on international environmental law. I am Professor Edith Brown Weiss from Georgetown University. In these next two lectures, we consider the basic principles of international environmental law. These may be grouped into the following parts. Avoiding harm, cooperation, sustainable development, economically related principles, the precautionary principle, intergenerational equity, and doctrines related to common heritage of mankind and human concern of humankind. We then consider the identification of the principles applied also to environmental disasters. But first we turn to the basic principle in public international law, namely national sovereignty. In international law, the basic principle is that states have, quote, the sovereign right to exploit their own resources pursuant to their own environmental and developmental policies. This principle was set out as principle 21 in the Stockholm Declaration on the Human Environment, where it referred at that time only to developing up to their own environmental policies, and then principle 2 of the Rio Declaration on Environment and Development, where the words development were added. However, this principle has another essential part, which limits the exercise of national sovereignty. As noted in both Principle 21 and Principle 2, the sovereign rights are limited by, quote, the responsibility to ensure that activities within their jurisdiction or control do not cause damage to the environment of other states or of areas beyond the limits of national jurisdiction. This is generally viewed as an obligation to avoid transboundary harm. So let's look at this basic principle, avoiding harm, which is also sometimes referred to as the prevention principle. The origins of this principle may be found in the basic international law principle of good neighborliness. In 1949, in the Corfu Channel case, the International Court of Justice noted, quote, every state's obligation not to allow knowingly its territory to be used for acts contrary to the rights of other states, unquote. At that time in this case, there were mines off the shore of Albania in the Corfu Channel. British warships passed through, the, passed through the channel not knowing about the mines. This was the UK versus Albania case. At about the same time as the Corfu Channel case, the arbitration decision came down in the famous trail smelter arbitration between Canada and the United States. This dispute involved a copper smelter's pollution in British Columbia in Canada which was causing significant damage in the state of Washington in the United States. In its decision, the arbitration tribunal stated that, quote, under the principles of international law, as well as of the United States, no state has the right to use or permit the use of its territory in such a manner as to cause injury by fumes to the territory of another or the properties or persons therein, when the case is of serious consequence 
and the injury is established by clear and convincing evidence." Unquote. The trail smelter arbitration is often cited in briefs that relate to issues of international environmental law. The International Court of Justice first confirmed the obligation to avoid harm to the environment, the so-called prevention principle, in its 1996 advisory opinion on the legality of the threat or use of nuclear weapons. In that case, the court noted that, quote, the general obligation of states to ensure that activities within their jurisdiction and control respect the environment of other states or of areas beyond national control is now part of the corpus of international law relating to the environment. It was a very important statement. The ICJ confirmed this statement in its 1997 decision in the gabchikova nadja morris case between Hungary and Slovakia regarding a dam on the Danube River. And again, it confirmed it in its 2010 decision in the pulp mills on the River Uruguay case between Argentina and Uruguay. In the Pope Mills case, the International Court of Justice, after quoting from the 1949 Corfu Channel case, stated, quote, each state is obliged to use all the means at its, at its disposal in order to avoid activities which take place in its territory or in any area under its jurisdiction, causing significant damage to the environment of another state. The court cites to its advisory opinion in 1996. The question arises then as to whether the difference in the formulations of the principle in the advisory opinion on nuclear weapons and in the Pope Mills case are significant. And if they are, why? Does the phrase, quote, obliged to use all the means at their disposal, unquote, strengthen the obligation, quote, to ensure that activities within their jurisdiction and control respect the environment of other states, unquote, which is the language used in the advisory opinion? Or does it place a limit on what the state is expected to do? One can argue that the word respect in the advisory opinion is general and may require less than what is now required under the formulation used in the Pulp Mills uh, case, or they may be the same. In cases that involve the conduct of a private actor within a country, and that that private actor causes transboundary harm, the question arises whether the conduct can be attributed to the state. So that an international environmental law in applying the principles, the question is, can private conduct be attributed to the state if it causes significant harm across national borders or areas outside the jurisdiction of the state. 
or is more required by the rules of attribution of conduct uh, to the state. This is always an important issue to address. In my view, the basic general rule of international law that states have the responsibility to ensure that activities within their jurisdiction or control do not cause significant harm to other states or areas beyond their jurisdiction provides an answer to this question. One can argue that a state is responsible for all activities within its jurisdiction or control that cause transboundary harm. This means that activities that are lawful within the country may still cause a state to violate its international obligation if the activity causes significant transboundary harm. We return now to the issue of what a state is required to do to fulfill the legal obligation in the principle of avoiding harm. The Restatement of Foreign Relations Law of the U.S. American Law Institute provides that, quote, a state is obligated to take such measures as may be necessary to the extent practicable under the circumstances to ensure that activities within its jurisdiction or control do not cause significant injury to areas beyond its jurisdiction. The question then is, what does the term quote, to the extent practicable under the circumstances, mean. It was an important but very controversial addition uh, to the text um, at that time. It recognizes that there are differences in circumstances and in countries' capacity uh, to comply. One of the basic principles in international environmental law is, of course, due diligence. In international law, the standard of due diligence applies to implementing the basic principle of avoiding harm. States are obligated to comply with certain procedural obligations to avoid harm in international environmental law. Now, there is some ambiguity as to whether these procedural obligations are independent or are part of implementing the standard of due diligence. The procedural principles include notice and consultation and environmental impact assessment. So let's take up each of these in turn. And first we, re we first return to notice and consultation. Principle 19 of the Rio Declaration on Environment and Development in 1992 provides the following, quote, States shall provide prior and timely notification and relevant information to potentially affected states on activities that may have a significant adverse transboundary environmental effect and shall consult with those states at an early stage and in good faith." Unquote. This principle builds upon the Corfu Channel case in which the court found that Albania was obligated to notify the United Kingdom of mines placed in its waters. 
the famous Lac Lanou arbitration between France and Spain in 1957, another basic case in international environmental law, concerned the diversion of water from Lac Lanou by France. It confirmed the obligations of notice and consultation. The tribunal's opinion is notable for applying the principle of the general principle of international law of the obligation to negotiate to the two states. It noted, quote, an intimate connection between the obligation to take adverse interests into account in the course of the negotiations and the obligation to give a reasonable place to such interests in the solution adopted. The tribunal made it clear, though, that while France needed to consult with Spain, Spain had no right to veto the proposed project. Now, one obligation, one issue with the obligation to consult is whether the state undertaking a project with transboundary effects must initiate the consultation or whether it need only respond to a request for consultation by an affected state. Certainly, it must do the latter. In my view, the state proposing the project is legally obligated to consult if there could be significant transboundary harm. Controversy, though, may arise over whether there was, in fact, evidence that significant harm could occur, which would trigger the obligation, um, which would trigger the, the obligation, uh, for example, to prepare an environmental impact assess, uh, an environmental impact statement, as was the case in the Costa Rica and Nicaragua cases uh, before the International Court of Justice. Principle 19 of the Rio Declaration, to repeat, obligate states to provide prior and timely notification. The words prior and timely are important and should be read as providing notice and information sufficiently early that affected states could respond and the project could be altered in response to concerns expressed. The same principle provides to repeat, to repeat now, that cons consultation must be at, quote, an early stage and in good faith, which reflects the same concerns related to prior and timely notice. Good faith, it should be noted, is a fundamental general principle of international law and applies generally to the actions of states. We have now looked at notice and consultation as procedural obligations Let's turn to environmental impact assessment. The preparation of an environmental impact assessment for projects that may cause significant harm is also now a general rule of international environmental law. In 1992, Principle 17 of the Rio Declaration on Environment and Development provides that, quote, environmental impact assessment as the national instrument 
shall be undertaken for proposed activities that are likely to have a significant adverse impact on the environment and are subject to a decision of a competent national authority. Note that the principle refers to the decision of a competent national authority. For federal states, which means those that have provinces, states, lender, or other subunits, there is the question of whether environmental impact assessments are required for those activities that may take place within a province or other subunits with transboundary effects, but do not involve the decision of a competent national authority. The principal intentionally did not cover this. For example, in the United States, the National Environmental Policy Act of 1969 requires an environmental impact statement for major federal activities significantly affecting the environment. But individual states within the United States may or may not provide for environmental impact uh, assessments. Article Principle 17 refers to a decision of a national authority. How do we interpret the words, the decision of a national authority? Whose decision and what kinds of subjects does it cover? For approval, for financial support, or other kinds of uh, decisions. In the very important pulp mills case on the River Uruguay, which involved the construction of a paper mill on the River Uruguay, in Uruguay, the International Court of Justice declared, quote, that it may now be considered a requirement under general international law to undertake an environmental impact assessment where there is a risk that the proposed industrial activity may have a significant adverse impact in a transboundary context, in particular on a shared resource. This is a very important statement. The court relates this to due diligence and the duty of, of diligence and prevention which it implies. The court notably declined to specify any requirements for the preparation of the environmental impact assessment, such as public participation, or to elaborate on the scope and content of the environmental impact assessment. It did, however, note that the environmental impact assessment must be conducted prior to implementing a project. Moreover, it stated that, quote, once operations have started and, where necessary throughout the life of the project, continuous monitoring of its effects on the environment shall be undertaken. This could mean that monitoring effects become part of environmental impact assessment. There remains a legal question of whether the environmental impact assessment is limited to industrial activities. But subsequent jurisprudence suggests it is not. And one can argue that it applies generally to all activities that may have a significant transboundary adverse impact. It has now become a general rule 
of international law. What then are other procedural obligations in international environmental law? And these include access to information, public participation, and access to judicial and administrative remedies. The 1992 Rio Declaration on Environment and Development contains procedural obligations which are intended to prevent harm and ensure effective sustainable development. It has ones beyond those that we have already discussed. Principle 10 of the Rio Declaration provides, quote, environmental issues are best handled with the participation of all concerned citizens at the relevant level, unquote. The principle goes on to identify the need to provide, quote, appropriate access to information concerning the environment that is held by public authorities, unquote, and the opportunity to participate in decision-making processes. Appropriate access to information concerning the environment held by public authorities uh, refers particularly to information regarding toxics and hazardous uh, uh, items uh, in the vicinity. The principle also provides for effective access to judicial and administrative proceedings, including redress and remedy. These three aspects, access to information, public information, public participation, and access to judicial and administrative proceedings have often been stated to be binding obligations now in international environmental law. The well-known Aarhus Convention under the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe, the UNECE, is on access to information, public participation in decision-making, and access to justice in environmental matters. It is an important international agreement addressing the three aspects in Principle 10 of the Rio Declaration. Then there is the question of a procedural obligation for prior informed consent. Some international agreements incorporate this. For example, the Basel Convention on the Transboundary Movement of Hazardous Wastes requires the prior informed consent of the country receiving the wastes and any transit country for the waste while it is en route to the country of disposal. The Convention for the Application of Prior Informed Consent Procedures for Certain Hazardous Chemicals and Pesticides in International Trade, a 1998 convention, also requires this. It has also been invoked in connection with the rights of indigenous people uh, to give their advanced consent to projects that may affect forests, fisheries, soils, and other important resources to them. The status of prior informed consent as a procedural obligation appears to be specific to the particular problems that are being addressed.
And now we have been focusing on the basic principle of avoiding harm. And now I want to turn to what I call the really second basic principle in international environmental law, and that is the principle of cooperation. The Rio Declaration on Environment and Development provides in Principle 7 that, quote, states shall cooperate in the spirit of global partnership to conserve, protect, and restore the health and integrity of the Earth's ecosystem. The principle of cooperation reflects the common interests of states and other actors. One can even argue that cooperation is a moral principle and that it's necessary for laws to be interpreted as a system of obligation uh, to carry out this norm. The principle of cooperation is found in diverse cultures and traditions and is embedded with many in many legal instruments that states have concluded. The main feature of the international principle of cooperation is the obligation of states to cooperate with each other, although the obligation has only been clearly defined in specific contexts. The specific goal is that the target of cooperation could vary widely, from increasing the welfare of the international community to conserving common spaces such as the oceans and outer space, to promoting peace, to promoting sustainable development. I want to stress that the obligation is found in many international agreements concerned with the environment whether it be the Convention on Biological Diversity, the United Nations Convention on the Law of, the, on the law of Non-Navigational non-navigation, non Uses of International Watercourses, or the World Trade Organization Marrakesh Agreement. A theory of cooperation indicates that there are at least two factors that can lead to cooperation. The first is that states or other, fact, or other actors will face each other again in the future. And they have the most overall to gain from cooperating. That they are not engaged in a zero-sum game. They face the shadow of the future. A second key factor is that states will have to interact in the future. And thus to prevent losses in which everyone will suffer. These issues were explored in the first lecture, and I would only not note that cooperation is an essential principle for dealing with issues related to a commons or a public good. The obligation to cooperate has been linked with an emerging principle of common but differentiated responsibilities. This is a principle in international environmental law, distinct from the principle in international trade law. Principle 7 of the Rio Declaration on Environment and Development provides that, quote, in view of the different contributions to global environmental degradation, states have common but differentiated responsibilities, 
unquote. The legal issue is what the term common but differentiated responsibilities means and requires. The UN Framework Convention on Climate Change provides in Article 3, which is an article entitled Principles, that the state should protect the climate system, quote, on the basis of equity and in accordance with our common but differentiated responsibilities and respective capabilities. In both the Rio Declaration and the UNFCC, developed countries have a special responsibility because of their behavior to take the lead in combating climate change and to pursue sustainable development. The 2015 Paris Agreement incorporates common but differentiated responsibilities. How then do we implement the principle? Sometimes common but differentiated responsibilities leads to a common obligation for all states that are parties to an agreement. It can be coupled with a delayed timetable for implementing the same obligation and can involve financial and technical assistance to certain countries to enable them to implement and comply with the agreement. The Montreal Protocol against chemicals that deplete that high-level ozone layer provides for a common target and timetable for reducing the controlled chemicals. And this means X percent reduction in a given number of years based on an earlier baseline. Three components there, a baseline, a percentage reduction by a target year. That is a common obligation. But the Montreal Protocol has a delayed timetable of 10 years for certain countries that meet the requirements of Article 5, and it then gives them a 10-year delayed time period to implement the agreement and come into compliance. It also provides a Montreal Protocol fund to assist countries in doing so. The last was an important amendment in London at the first meeting of the Conference of the Parties to the Montreal Protocol. There is a, sep a separate approach, and that is that the obligation itself <clears throat> may differ among states that are parties to the agreement. The Paris 2015 Agreement on Climate Change, in a sense, is the ultimate reflection of this because it provides for nationally determined contributions by each state to reach the target goal. Nationally determined contributions by each state to reach the target goal and provides for technical and financial assistance. The Kyoto Protocol to the UN Framework Convention on Climate, on climate Change provided explicit target and timetable obligations to reduce greenhouse gases for Annex I countries and no obligations for other countries to do so. And no way for a country that began as a non-Annex I country to become an Annex I country 
if its emissions increased enormously and became very significant. This led to its ultimate uh, replacement by the agreement negotiated as the Paris 2015 Agreement under the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. While most jurists accept common but differentiated responsibilities as a legal principle, there is nonetheless some controversy over its legal status and certainly over its interpretation and implementation. We turn now to the question of sustainable development. Sustainable development is considered by many scholars to be a principle of international environmental law. The principle has never been defined. Principle one of the Rio Declaration on Environment and Development states that, quote, human beings are at the center of concerns for sustainable development. They are entitled to a healthy and productive life in harmony with nature, unquote. The World Commission on Environment and Development in its report, Our Common Future, before the Rio Conference, states that, quote, sustainable development is development that meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs, unquote. According to the Commission, it contains two key concepts. The concept of needs, and particularly the essential needs of the world's poor, unquote, and Quote, the idea of limitations imposed by the state of technology and social organization on the environment's ability to meet present and future needs, unquote. Professor Von Lowe argues that sustainable development is in fact not a legal principle, for it lacks a fundamentally norm-creating character and cannot purport to constrain the conduct, conduct of states. Rather, sustainable development has normative status as a meta-principle, a kind of interstitial normativity that affects primary norms when they threaten to overlap or conflict with each other. In regarding sustainable development as a binding legal principle, it is important to define it sufficiently in a way that it can guide the behavior of states. Like I said, there is long been controversy over whether sustainable development is an objective, a principle of international law, or a concept that is given legal significance only when specifically incorporated into a legal instrument. In the Gabchikova Najimoris case before the International Court of Justice in 1997, which as I mentioned involved a construction of a dam on the Danube River, the International Court of Justice referred to the concept of sustainable development, not the legal principle of sustainable development. In the Pulp Mills case in 2010, the court references sustainable development as an objective for states to conduct, for state conduct to achieve. Still, one can argue that the concept has essential normative value and that the many agreements, statutes, non-binding legal instruments, judicial and arbitral tribunals, 
and writings by international legal scholars have raised the status of sustainable development to that of a principle binding upon states. Sustainable development is also relevant to the interpretation of agreements. For example, the preamble to the World Trade Organization Agreement refers to an objective of sustainable development. Under Article 31.1 of the Vienna Convention on Treaties, the objective in the preamble can be relevant to interpreting the provisions of agreements. In the famous shrimp-turtle dispute before the World Trade Organization's appellate body, the appellate body's decision noted that sustainable development adds, quote, color, texture, and shading to our interpretation of the agreements annexed to the WTO agreement, unquote. Sustainable development, in any case, is an essential concept, uh, an objective, and uh, a normative uh, guideline. And now we return to the polluter pays principle. One aspect of sustainable development is protecting against externalities, effects outside on others of the production process. These include usually pollution. And one aspect of sustainable development is to ensure that those who cause pollution across national borders pay the costs of controlling it. Plants, factories produce pollution, and that is an externality affecting others. Yet they may not incorporate the costs of the externality into the costs of production. Rather, the costs are thrust on others so that the price does not reflect the costs. The polluter pays principle in international law responds to this problem. It is associated with the basic norm to prevent or avoid harm. In 1972, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, adopted the polluter pays principle. The OECD said that the principle is that the says that the polluter should bear the expenses of carrying out the measures decided by public authorities to ensure that the environment is in an acceptable state. And there is a very important document in 1972 by the OECD laying out the polluter pays principle. At that time, the principle was intended to ensure a level playing field between countries and their international trading relationships. The Rio Declaration on Environment and Development, 1992, provides in Principle 16, quote, the national authority should endeavor to promote the internalization of environmental costs and the use of economic instruments, taking into account the approach that the polluter should, in principle, bear the cost of pollution, with due regard to the public interest 
and without distorting international trade and investment. The International Convention on Oil Pollution Preparedness, Response, and Cooperation refers in its preamble to the polluter pays principle as a general principle of international law. While many international legal instruments embrace the polluter pays principle, it is also sometimes referred to as a goal rather than a binding obligation itself. And this brings us to my final uh, section, which is to look at principles related to environment and trade, the linkage that has now been drawn between international environmental law and international trade law. It is part of sustainable development. Already in 1972, states were concerned about environmental measures causing harmful effects on trade. Developing countries were especially concerned that developed countries would adopt strict environmental standards and then pass the costs on to developing countries or would interfere with their exports. The Stockholm Conference Action Plan contains recommendations already in 1972 addressing these concerns but the Declaration on the Human Environment does not include any principles on the issue. Twenty years later, in 1992, at the Rio Conference on Environment and Development, states set forth the basic premise that environment and trade should be mutually supportive of each other. This meant that environmental measures should not be poised to be used against market access and economic development and trade measures should not preclude legitimate environmental measures. The Rio Declaration includes two principles, principles 12 and 16, which are aimed at ensuring that states' measures to protect the environment do not impede free trade by creating discriminatory and protectionist non-tariff barriers to trade, and at the same time to legitimize the environmental measures. Now tariffs are an additional price placed on the import of a given product. Non-tariff barriers generally refer to limitations on the import and the export of products. Principle 12 is the more, most important of the two provisions. It provides in part that, quote, trade policy measures for environmental purposes should not constitute a means of arbitrary or unjustifiable discrimination or a disguised restriction on international trade." Unquote. This is an exact statement from the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, the Chapeau language of Article 20, the exceptions uh, in GATT, which is part of a basic agreement of the WTO. Principle 12 of the Rio Declaration further provides that unilateral actions to deal with environmental challenges outside the jurisdiction of the importing country should be avoided. Environmental measures addressing transboundary or global environmental problems should, as far as possible, be based on an international consensus. Note that the text uses the word should, not shall. It recognizes that there may be situations such as 
the problem of depleting the stratospheric ozone layer, climate change, control of pandemics, where it may be necessary for a country to take unilateral action to protect the commons or maintain a public good before international consensus has been fully reached. The United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, negotiated at the same time as the Rio Declaration, contains a provision similar to that in the Rio Declaration regarding unilateral action. Article 3, which again is the article that has the headline principles, provides that, quote, measures taken to combat climate change, including unilateral ones, should not constitute a means of arbitrary or unjustifiable discrimination or a disguised restriction on international trade. Again, the exact wording from the Chapeau language in Article 20 of the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. <clears throat> Cases brought before the WTO dispute settlement bodies have sometimes addressed the issue of unilateral measures taken to protect resources located outside a country's jurisdiction. The legal issues related to environment and trade are, become, are becoming relevant, especially to the problem of climate change. Initially, this may take the form of tariffs on imported products from exporting countries that have not made comparable efforts to reduce carbon emissions or other actions. The polluter pays principle discussed above, of course, remains relevant to environment and trade issues. It is perhaps useful to clarify that if measures are taken in the form of, of, of controls on the import or export of products uh, that have uh, from countries that have not been made comparable efforts to reduce carbon emissions or tariffs are, or fees are imposed, that under the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, one must first find an inconsistency or violation of the provisions of that agreement. And then we reach Article 20, the exceptions. And there are two exceptions that are very relevant to the environment and trade debate. Uh, the first is Article B, and that is for when it's necessary, and I underline necessary, to protect human, animal, or plant life or health. And the second is Article 20G, which says, relating to the conservation of exhaustible natural resources. If such measures are made effective in conjunction with restrictions on domestic production or consumption. And it's important to note the difference between necessary to protect under Article 20B and relating to the conservation under Article 20G. Once one finds that something comes within Article 20B or G, one must, of course, go back and then look at the language in the Chapeau, which was quoted in the Rio Declaration on Environment and Development. Uh, these issues are likely to become uh, much more common in the face of measures that we need to take to address uh, climate change. In summary and linking environment and trade, we need to be aware that it's not only in climate change, but in a number of areas in which the linkage will be important and has been important. These include in protecting natural resources, in combating pollution, including air pollution, 
in protecting public health, and now, more recently, on the issue of climate change. Thank you very much.